Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, here with George Williams and Joe Anderson. So if you don't know these guys, they're both culture change experts. George and Joe both work at Bebron Medical now. George Williams used to work at Bristol's Myers Squibb, and Joe used to work at the Schwann Food Company and J.M. Schmuck. Both of you guys are CRL, CRL black belts. Does either of you want to break down the process of how you become a CRL black belt? Yeah, sure. Uh, hey, Rob, thanks for first. Thanks for having us on. We uh, we really appreciate the you know you spending some time with us and uh, inviting us to your podcast. Um, so the CRL black belt process uh, really starts a with with obtaining your CRL, and then once you've obtained the CRL certification, uh, at that point you can then take um, a couple of projects associated with each of the domains. So you're required to do at least one project for each of the knowledge domains within the CRL, uh, and that project really is about a, a about a 90 day project. It's it's not necessarily extensive, but has to provide value. Uh, you are required to get your manager signature. You're required to get finances signature on the either cost savings or benefit back to the company, uh, and you execute against that project. And so once you once you achieve uh, completion of a project in each of the knowledge domains, then you are eligible for your CRL black belt. You then submit all that paperwork back to the folks at Reliability Web and and uh, RLI, and they do a review of the paperwork and and uh, hopefully you get approved. <laughs> yeah, and so everybody, just so just so you know, CRL stands for Certified Reliability Leader. It's run by the Association of Maintenance Professionals. Uh, George and Joe are, I think, you're two out of the three in the world. Who's the third? Uh, maybe it's just you two. Um, <laughs> Yeah, to, to my knowledge, it's just us two. I've only I've only seen the two awarded, but uh, there certainly could be could many be more. more. I, I'm just not aware of them. Yeah, so uh, then you guys are the two in the world. So first, congrats! Thanks for coming on. Um, so let's dive right in. So I saw you guys give a keynote at the reliability conference this year about called "It's not you, but it's you," and, and I guess the concept was you know, reliability leaders taking ownership of their own 
you know, process. Do you want to break down what what it's not you, but it's you is about? Well, first off, I think um, given the experience that George and I have in the industry, you see a lot of times that we like to place blame. And I think the talk came out of the fact that blame uh, doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't lead to success. So we wanted to bring up the fact that, and it's not popular to talk about, but we like to blame others for our lack of success, uh, not understanding the obstacles that are in our path. So um, we wanted to bring to light the fact that, you know, there's ways around obstacles, whether it's, you know, it's through it, under it, around it. Um, it doesn't matter. The, the point is, is ultimately you're the one that's accountable for your own success. So, um, you know, kind of is what it is at that point. So we've gone to, we've gone to a, a, a number of conferences over the course of our career. And I think that when you go to these conferences, there are folks you see on a very regular basis. There are folks you that are kind of new. And the recurring theme for the folks that are new is that they're pushing a boulder uphill. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. And a lot of us have had to do that in our career. The folks that are persistent, the folks that irrespective of what is in front of them in terms of challenges, irrespective of the bosses they happen to have at that time or the leadership that's in place at their organization, the folks that see success, see success because of themselves. And the folks that are not seeing success are not seeing success because of themselves to to place blame on obstacles in your way or the situation that you happen to be in is, is really not an excuse for success. You can achieve, you've just not figured out how to either talk to your boss appropriately or convince him of, of the fact that um, asset management is the right path for the organization. There, there are reasons why you're not successful. And the, 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 the point in time at which you accept the fact that that success relies on you is a turning point. It is a tipping point. And I think from my perspective, what I would like people to understand is that the technologies have existed for a long time, the approach, the practices, all those things are available in books and you can read them all day long. But until you self-reflect and until you look at success holistically and realize that the success of your organization relies on your ability to either promote asset management or not. And I think that's why we use Paul Crocker as an example. I mean, he's one of those that, one, he's a government uh, utility. So the challenges there alone are hard enough. And then um, being basically the sole champion at that point where he was in his career and being able to overcome and do all the things that he's done, he's a prime example of exactly what we're talking about on the success side. Um, so it was a it was a fun time being able to honor him, but also letting people know that he is one of those that we're talking about that you can overcome those obstacles and be successful. Yeah, I I think I mean I definitely it definitely resonates with me. Um, I'm excited to talk to Paul about that you know coming up, but I really see it a lot in I know that in my previous job at Tech we we talked about it a lot. When, with respect to the CMMS, where you, where you hear, you know, garbage in, garbage out, and I think a lot of it is is laziness. I mean, to be frank, how do you guys how do you perceive it? 
I, I think I, he hit the nail on the head uh, in a lot of aspects, but I think a lot of it is a lack of knowledge and a lack of knowledge drives fear. So people don't want to move or they're paralyzed because of uh, the lack of understanding. And it's not a bad thing. Um, it's just the fact that they don't know and they see people like us get up in front of a crowd and talk about it. And, and it's a lot easier to get up there and talk about it than it is to actually execute. So I think it paralyzes people, the fear, but, um, those people that overcome are the ones that become successful. And the only way to do it is to just do it, um, without fear of failure, you're going to fail and and you've got to be able to learn from it. I mean, the greatest thing is that you fell forward and not backward. So that's kind of the key. So how do you get over the mental hump to get going? Like, it's almost like I like it to thinking like, you know, you want to run that marathon, but you're still watching TV on the couch. And if you don't get up and go train, you're never going to be able to run the marathon. How do you start? Where do you start? I think there's two two aspects of that. I think first and foremost, you have to have a, a sound fundamental understanding of asset management. And so that takes an awful lot of reading, an awful lot of essentially training, like you're saying, right? You got you to gotta prepare yourself. I think the other aspect of that is on the asset management side of the fence and in the maintenance and reliability side of the fence, we continually fall short of attaching ourselves to business outcomes. And we don't understand that the the function of our equipment and its ability to perform that function impacts all aspects of our organization. And so if you go to the you know www.aboutus.com for any any organization, there's going to be some fundamental pieces that exist. We've got to supply our customers a high quality product. We've got to make money. We've got a commitment to our employees. We've got a commitment to safety. We've got a commitment to the environment. And we've got a potential, potentially, depending on the company, a commitment to the community. And all companies have essentially the same goals and objectives. They're all there to make money, high quality product, service, the, 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 all, everything I just mentioned. But on the maintenance side of the fence, we tend to try to tie everything to the individualized asset and its cost to the organization, which is a minuscule piece of what the impact of that asset is. You are, you know, highly more likely to have a, an incident, in, you know, in a reactive work order than you than you are from a safety perspective on a proactive work order. And the cost of of downtime is significant, and the cost of a repair versus doing a predictive maintenance task is con- is is considerable. So, I think there's a fundamental flaw in the asset management community to tie your expectations to the actual business outcomes of the organization. And I'd agree with George there. And I think if you followed anything that I've done, I've spent a lot of time explaining the business side of what we do to give people the fundamental understanding of how it all ties to the business. It isn't just that uh, we mitigated a failure. It's there's a cost savings associated with it. We gain more throughput. The organization is doing better. There's all these other things that tie to it. And understanding how to sell your your value proposition, and and tied to those assets, you know, you got to capture value and you've got to show value through cost savings, cost avoidance, whatever it is, um, and be able to sell that to the organization. And I think that's a big gap that we have on the maintenance side, 
And I think it's uh, it's a couple of reasons, right? One is, you know, most maintenance supervision has been promoted because they were the best reactive maintenance mechanic there was on the floor. But we've done nothing to invest in them as a company to develop them as leaders. We just said, hey, you're really good on this piece of equipment. We want you to lead other people. And, you know, in my history, I've, I've been time and time again, seven, eight times in different companies, and I've seen the same thing. We take the best, what we think is the best mechanic, and we promote him to supervisor or we promote him to maintenance manager, and we expect him to know, but he was a mechanic, and we've done nothing to invest in these people to bridge the gap between how to communicate what we're doing to the business side of things. And if you can relate it to the business, it's an easier sell. So when you're saying it's an easier sell, who are we selling to? You're selling to uh, executive management, whether it's plant management or above. Um, you got to sell the value of maintenance, reliability, asset management, and operational reliability as well. And understanding, you know, the ties to the business. Because you're not, you're developing two aspects, right? You're developing the people side. And you're also developing the equipment side, which is a two-prong approach to true holistic reliability. I think a lot of times we only focus on equipment from a reliability perspective. We also, uh, and this is my opinion, but the mistake that we make is we tie maintenance and reliability together. When maintenance is a piece of reliability, it's only one small piece, statistically about 13% where we're not looking at it holistically. What is operations doing to maintain their equipment? What is, you know, engineering doing, you know, at the design phase to give us good equipment? You know, engineering is known for dumping off a piece of equipment that doesn't work, and now maintenance is stuck with it, and now it's maintenance's problem. What's, you know, procurement doing? What is sales and marketing doing? There's all these facets that tie into reliability that have nothing to do with maintenance, but we tie those two terms together. And now when we bring up reliability, everybody thinks it's a maintenance function. Um, so, you know, again, that's, it's my opinion, but I think it's a mistake. No, it's, it's definitely, um, well, I mean, you see it everywhere. The maintenance superintendent usually is the, the boss of the reliability manager. Something I wanted to, to actually jump on that you said, Joe was, um, you said that, you know, all these different departments kind of function and the stuff that they do, uh, affects reliability and something that I, I was at a site a few weeks ago and one of the young co-op students made a comment and said to me and the, and the room and, and said, you know, we're all on the same team here. And all the lube specialists at the back had a chuckle because they seem to be fighting with operations. And then they also fight with maintenance because they're not exactly maintenance people. How do you like, we talk in asset management about alignment. How do we actually get everyone on the same page? Well, for me, um, and, and I'm sure George has input on this as well, but for me is Maintenance is always to blame in a reactive environment. And the reason for that is because we don't understand the losses that are in our system. 
and breakdowns is only one of the 16 major manufacturing losses that exist. But because maintenance losses are visible, meaning that uh, this piece of equipment went down for 30 minutes and then we go in the morning meeting um, and say, well, this piece of equipment is why we didn't hit our numbers. And no one challenges the fact that there's speed losses in the system. There's minor stops in the system. You know, there's all this waste in the system and all these other things because we don't understand it. Um, as a maintenance manager in my past, I've always done my best to expose at least the six big losses related to OEE so that I can get everyone to see that these losses contribute holistically. You're telling me breakdowns is an issue and you want to blame maintenance, but we're 10% on average. We're 10% of plant losses. So if I can expose that and I do that, I, we've developed a loss analysis tool um, where we can expose those things. Where minor stops 99.9% .9 of the time are the number one loss in any facility. And minor stops are owned by operations. That's a, a, any stop 10 minutes or less in the system, right? So the box jams in the box machine for a minute. We clear the jam and we keep running, but no one records it. And so those things, you know, it happens 60, 70, 80, 90 times in a shift and you've lost two or three hours of downtime to box jams. But we're complaining in the morning meeting about the 30 minute breakdown that we had during the same shift and saying we can't hit our numbers. So to me, I expose losses. I get everybody involved and get them to understand holistically where all their losses are so that we're at. As a team, we go to eliminate those losses to increase throughput, you know, reduce safety and quality incidents and hit our numbers. And, and it seemed to work for me everywhere else I've gone. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, I mean, it's it's all about data and, and giving a, a proper understanding of what the goals are of the organization. As Joe mentioned, a, 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 you know, a failure is very visible to the organization. The line is completely down and it's down for you know, longer than 10 minutes, let's say it's down for two hours. It's a, it, it's significant to the organization from a visibility standpoint. Meanwhile, all the minor stops are adding up to six hours a, a, a shift and or, 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 you know, per day. And, and, and so the folks are visible to the individualized event. Meanwhile, they are blind to the significant losses that are occurring on a, on a very repetitive basis day in and day out. And so, the, the role of asset management is really to put together, you know, not only the strategy to improve in terms of asset management and reliability, but to really educate and provide a level of understanding to those around them in order to be able to get that buy-in. And, you, you know, your the, 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 the basis of your question was how do you get folks involved and how do you get folks to buy in? And I think the way you get folks to buy in is to convince them it's the right thing to do. It, it's no different than, than, you know, if you're setting your objectives for the year, you, you've got to convince your organization that the things that you need to work on are the right things to do. And to do that, you've got to provide a level of understanding and you back that with information and data. And I think it's, it's a lot easier to sell when you go after quick wins and low hanging fruit. So you expose a loss that's been nagging operations for so long that it's become a part of the picture and they just think no one's ever going to address the issue. And you bring those issues up and you put them to rest and you start to see uh, the headaches start to go away. 
and you'll get more and more people on your side. I think the goal is to find, you know, that roughly 10% that wants change. It's 10 to 20%, uh, but we'll be conservative. The 10% that want change, and you get those quick wins so that you can get the 60% that are sitting on the fence uh, undecided. You can get them on your side. And, and once you have, you know, 70 to 80% of the group, the other 20% doesn't matter. The goal is to focus on the 80%, and those 20% will improve just through the changes that are being made, but the 80% are going to be the ones that drive the change. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I definitely really like the data-driven process. I really like starting with quick wins. Um, I think that that's something that, you know, people on the floor, like whether that's operators or maintenance, they're really going to like you if you start with the with stuff that bothers them. Um, now, we'll switch gears a little bit. So let's say you guys were dropped into a new plant today and you're, and as far as you know, you, you're dealing with a reactive culture. How do you, like, how do you sell to people what the end goal looks like and what the vision of reliability is? Uh, so, so I think I, I heard a couple of different questions there, Rob. So, so one was around culture. The other one was around, you know, selling the vision. So I, I guess let me address one, uh, and then the other, and then talk about how they're kind of combined. So from a vision perspective, you've got to have a really good understanding of what the organization's objectives are. Asset management as a whole is a great practice and we would all love to achieve 100% of the inherent reliability of our equipment. But it doesn't always make sense to do so. In some cases, there are lines that we are running that we only need 50% of the time of because the, the product is either outdated or it's phasing out um, or the equipment is at end of life and we expect to replace it in three years. So should we really do as much maintenance on it as, as we were doing in the past? And so there are justifiable reasons to not necessarily focus in certain areas. And I think the vision piece of this and the asset management strategy piece of this has to focus on what is right for the organization. And to do that, you've got to understand the organization. You've got to understand it from a context perspective. You've got to understand it from where they're going, from what they're investing in, from what the future looks like before you can set your vision. And then if those things align, I think they're a, it's a lot easier to get senior leadership on board because you're essentially talking the same language that they've already approved. From a culture perspective, once you've set that vision, you've now got to get folks to march in that in that order. And I think, you know, culture is a whole different topic of conversation that 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 certainly I, I want to talk about. But the the initial look at culture and and what has to happen in order for you to achieve your goals really stems from getting folks to have a goal. Folks don't show up to work to do a poor job. But typically, when when faced with equipment that is down, they have to make a choice. They either band-aid it or they fix it right the first time. And what differentiates the two approaches is really that vision and, and the actions and behaviors of management associated with that vision. So if the vision says fix it right the first time, but management is saying get it up and running, get it up and running, get it up and running, well, we're going to band-aid it. So... It, you know, the, the integrity between the vision and senior leadership will evolve culture. 
if that makes sense. I think the, a piece to add to that as well is when you set vision, mission, values, and goals, you're giving people direction. And people want a sense of direction. They want to understand where are we going, where are you taking us. You know, people want to be led. You know, whether they admit it or not, they want to be led. And, and they're looking at leadership going, what's next? Where do we want to go? You know, and by setting those things and like George said, with integrity, driving those things, you get people on board. And I think that to set a systems loop to that and a backfeed to that, um, you talked about folks, you know, um, really wanting to achieve against that vision and and. You know, the, the organization and culture evolves based on the behaviors of senior leadership. And so, you know, if you, you know, you talk about data and I think in, in some of the, the pre-work that you sent crap in, crap out, and it's the same thing here. If you set a vision and expectation, but you're not living to it, you're not setting an example to it, then it's not going to evolve and you're going to be pushing a boulder uphill. Well, we, we see hypocrites every day, right? We don't like to follow them in the industry yeah, yeah in the industry sure. <laughs> no I, I couldn't agree more about like i guess the next question would be do you often see companies that have the alignment between their actions and their vision? very few yeah that's uh Unfortunately, I think very few i i, I think and, and you know i'm saying this in jest because i i certainly haven't talk to a thousand companies. I'm, I'm not a consultant who's talked to millions of organizations. Mm -hmm. I do teach at the University of Wisconsin. And and, um, and so I interact with an awful lot of students there. Um, I also, um, you know, go to a lot of conferences. So I have a lot of folks that I speak to there. But um, in terms of what I've, what my experience has been based on those experiences, yeah, no, we're we're not we're doing a, a very poor job industrial wide. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. I think my background uh, is a little more extensive as far as switching companies and things like that, and I've seen it and lived it. Um, I, they need help as well. I think senior leadership needs needs help because they're overwhelmed. You know, so ninety nine. 0.9% of, at least in the United States, manufacturing companies, uh, you know, they don't have a clue and they don't understand. So they're just going off of what they know and what they know isn't always the right direction. And, uh, you know, they, they need help. And I think they get in, they think they can do it, but you get overwhelmed really quick. Most people in this industry that run asset management have come up from a technician. There's not a whole lot of folks that I can point to who have been formally trained from a business and engineering perspective yeah. in the role of operating asset management. Yeah. And so you are at a table full of people with business degrees and with, with very specific schooling in the areas at which they are managing. Yeah. You are the runt of the litter. <laughs> yeah. You are the small dog at the bowl well, and you're trying to get people to understand your belief system and, and your approach and what you think is right. But quite frankly, you're probably not looked at with the same level of respect as everybody else at the table. If we look at some root causes, right? Um, up until the 80s, 
plant management were engineers and people that understood the business ties to engineering. And when, you know, investment firms started taking over, you know, capital investment, those types of things, you started seeing the sales folks getting promoted into these executive leadership positions because it was all about the stock price. And I think that's what we focused on today and not what is the long term. Am I in this for the long haul? It's what is the next quarter going to bring? And so that type of mentality is pushed throughout the culture of most of these organizations. What What's the stock price going to look like in a quarter? And to be honest, what can you achieve in a quarter? And that's an interesting concept because you also see leadership at plant levels where organizations have plants, say, say they have 10 plants. They will purposely switch around GMs every two, three years. Yep. So if you know you're a GM that's only got a two-year lifespan at a specific plant, you are focused on cutting. Yep. And and then cutting is the wrong way to go. We all know that from case studies. We cut headcount, cut budgets because it knocks the stock price up, but that only lasts for about you well, know, what do you care? You're gone three, at that point. Right. So, three years. So you look you're great. Gone in two. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, three yeah. years later, your plant is in chaos. And now the next guy that comes in, he could be the greatest plant manager of all time. But because everything is faltering beneath him, he's going to look like he's worthless. And yep. then the plant manager that left when everything was good is going, hey, what happened, man? You know, everything <laughs> was great when I left. And he's yep. the one that destroyed everything. And, you know, this new guy, whether it's a CEO, plant manager, whoever that takes over, um, you know, he's going to struggle. So it's, it's. And I think you see that cyclically, like you see that in our industry, even organizations that achieve very high levels of asset management, yep. you know, whatever we want to call that. They, they always end up coming back down. Like yeah, there's not, don't I, need it anymore. I don't, I don't know of a lot of examples. Right. Exactly. We you, don't need it anymore. What do we, we, we don't need that whole organization. Yeah, what do we need that whole organization anymore. for? We're running great. Right. So they, they cut everything down and then you go back to being reactive and then they go, Oh, well, we're going to need some, some reliability yeah, so here. Five years later, and then they, they're bringing back their the trouble is it takes you seven to 10 years to get it where it needs to be. And it takes you two years to screw it all up. So in summary, it's short-term thinking. <laughs> I mean, so like you guys talk about it, like it's just manufacturing. Like I come from the mining world and it's exactly the same there. I, I can uh, my background from- was R&D and pharmaceuticals. So, yeah. you know, I, I cut my teeth as a maintenance technician in an R&D space in pharmaceuticals. And, uh, and it was no different there. I mean, you know, the, the site that I was at, I, I worked my way up, became a reliability engineer. We want to an award for having a bait, best maintenance and reliability program. And, you know, a couple of years later, we're, we're back to square one and we're trying to do it again. And then we do it regionally and then we do it global. So, so, and we tried it globally f- probably three times before it actually caught fire. And, and so, you know, I think, I, I don't necessarily think it's an industry specific item. I think it's a financial management item. So it's, you know, I can only speak from a manufacturing perspective because that's my background. So uh, that's the reason why I speak about manufacturing, but I'm sure it's rampant throughout the industry. Yeah, I I think it, well, I mean, at at least from what I've seen, it's definitely the, like a lot of these senior managers, they're bonused off of the stock price or they're bonused off of, you know, their, their share plan options or whatever. 
And so they are really focused on the next two years or less. I, I think it's, you know, it's no different than general managers of like NBA teams. Like who's really planning for 20 years from now? They're really focused on this season or next season. Yeah, I think if you read any Deming at all, he's been saying this for a hundred years now, and we just can't seem to grasp that. I mean, it's you know, it's a mess, and you know, when your CEO changes every two years because he made the stock price go up by three bucks a share or whatever, you know, and 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 pads his resume to move on to a bigger company. Because a million dollars a year isn't enough. Now he can make $2 million a year. Uh, and and we keep nurturing that in this country. It's We're going to continue to see those problems. I think the other, the other issue is, from an asset management perspective, you're always trying to put a rocket on a turtle, which, which means you've got to balance the short-term wins with the long-term wins. In order for you to put together a full, uh, you know, a, what we would consider to be a sound asset management policy and, and approach requires you to do things that don't necessarily return today, like collecting your equipment hierarchy, like doing a, a criticality analysis. You're trying, you, you know, those things take time and those things take money and those things take patience to get in place for long-term sustainability. And I think a lot of times the recipe for reliability starts with all the things that take way too long to see a result for the organization to buy in and and asset management leaders need to balance or like i like to term it put a rocket on a turtle you you've got to balance short-term wins with the long-term asset management sustainability yeah that's that's definitely true i mean it's the same thing, right? With the marathon, like you don't start running that marathon tomorrow. You have six months, a year, a couple of years worth of training before you can get there. The problem is, is we want the marathon without the training. Right. I mean, if you're a fund, if you're a funded runner, they don't really care about your training. They want you to go run right away and right. return. A, and if a win. you've seen me, so. the training's gone real well, right? <laughs> like I could go run a marathon right now, but that's exactly where we're at in this industry is you know, it's forget the training. It's too expensive. I want results right now. And the problem is we have underdeveloped people. We're coming out of an education system that doesn't educate people. And then they're thrown out into the workforce. And then we're pulling our hair out wanting to understand why. But most of these organizations aren't investing in their people. And if we want to make a great country with great manufacturing or whatever industry it is, we've got to start investing in people. And you know, it's going to be a, our downfall. So we've spent a lot of time talking about what's wrong. Yeah. Let's let's kind of flip that around and, and start talking about what we've got to do to, to make a difference. And, you know, I, and I think that really starts with, with, with educating those folks at the ground floor level and Definitely. giving them a, a sound fundamental understanding as to, you know, a lot of times we'll give people direction and give them, them, um, requirements that they have to face and here you have to do things this way with zero understanding as to why that's beneficial to the organization and i think you know those pieces of giving people understanding is what we can do as as leaders and that really makes the difference people people will only do so much based on well you have to yeah we also squash innovation and creativity because they might have a better way of doing it 
but we're stuck in our ways of this work. And well, it worked 25 years yeah, ago, so we'll just do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it happens all the time. Yeah, that, you know, like tying in someone's task to the actual goals of the organization, that's the one of the number one ways to engage employees. And, and really, like, if you look at the statistics, we're like in the United States alone, you're losing $150 billion a year just because people go to work and they're just not engaged with their job. It's like a ri ridiculous statistic. Yeah, the waste is plentiful, that's for sure. And, you know, if the uh, Lean Six Sigma black belts would provide value, man, you probably wouldn't see that. But. <laughs> well, I think that, <laughs> I, I think a lot of the focus ends up, you know, like you like you had mentioned earlier about losses. It's the, the trouble is a lot of folks do focus on waste, yeah. and they're not focused on manufacturing. They're not focused on losses. They're, they're not, focused on waste. Right, yeah. and so they're two different things. They're not focused yeah. on manufacturing better or producing more product. They're focused on streamlining the poor practices they have today, and right. and that that is short term thinking. I think a lot of people don't want to ask for help either. I think it's a pride issue, and pride comes also from a lack of knowledge. This will be the last question before before we get you guys out of here. So along that line of pride, how often do you think that ego is something that's getting in our way, either as reliability people trying to help an organization or as, you know, as we try to help somebody understand what we're trying to do? Well, I think uh, it comes back to Einstein. Right. Einstein had an equation that it was ego equals I over knowledge. Right. So the more I you have, the less knowledge, the more ego. Right. But the more knowledge you have, the less I you have. So the less ego. So I think a lot of it, again, it comes back to a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. That's where you get the ego and you won't win an ego battle. It's a testosterone driven fight when you walk into an office and try to battle a lack of knowledge versus the right thing to do. And uh, you couple that with most maintenance and reliability professionals inability to communicate and it just creates chaos. And, and I would say, it, I, I don't know, I've lived my career with the thought that, that and, and this is really true today because there is a shortage of qualified skilled people out there. If you are in a position right now where you're stuck battling ego, go to another company. Yeah, especially in today's economy. I, yeah, I, I, as it yeah. keeps getting better, it's it's an employee market now, so well, it's easy to jump ship. Why push around. a battle uphill and try to? It depends yeah. on where that individual sits, right? I mean, if that's that person's your your immediate boss, I think you can sit down, have some conversations, and hopefully, uh, you know, provide them some knowledge and understanding. Of, but if it's if it's senior leadership, it, it's a tough battle, and and some organizations the ego gets in the way of their success. Yeah, and, and it's not ego for the great for great reasons necessarily. It's ego for the fact of ego, right? Like you said, it's it's ignorance over knowledge. And so if you if you are ignorant and don't let don't have the knowledge, then your ego is inflated. Well, that's what creates inflated ego. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, ego it generates fear because you're going to be exposed as one that doesn't know. And so you see everybody as a threat 
And when you see everybody as a threat, you surround your people, you surround yourself with people that know less than you do, so you can always be superior. And then you create a terrible team that you're surrounded with, but you always look like the good guy because they're your scapegoats instead of developing a team that's going to make you look good. And I think as as leaders, we want people uh that make us look good i mean my job is to make my boss look good and get him promoted and that's the way i look at it so so rob i i want to have a second session so (laughs) this conversation's not we 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 you know we we've kind of we've kind of gone down a rabbit hole of what's wrong in the industry and i think you know the the focus should really be on what can we do different and so, you know, if you're up for it, um, we, we should probably coordinate another another time for us to sit down and say, OK, well, we listed all these things. What uh, what can we do different as as reliability leaders and asset managers to to make a difference? And, I, I you know, I, I'm not one to want to focus on those negative pieces. So let's let's sit down again and let's have a conversation around. Well, what can we do different? What can we what can we bring to the industry to make sure that this doesn't uh become a systemic uh, issue over the next 30 years. Yeah, I agree with that. We got to bring solutions. No, I, I, I would love to have you guys back on. And, and like, again, like this, you know, this podcast is not about turning young people off of reliability, right? Um, we're here to, you know, promote the, the good word and kind of hope that people learn some things. And, and, you know, like both of you guys are, are great experts and, you know, thanks for coming on. Um, the last thing before you go, do you guys have anything to plug, you know, do, should people follow you on LinkedIn or are you going to be at any conferences, anything like that? Yeah, sure. So, um, certainly you can follow, follow myself on Twitter. It's, um, uh, reliability X. Uh, also you can, uh, uh, see me, I'll be at the SMRP this year, uh, giving a presentation, uh, with arms reliability and I'll be at the IMC as well, doing a, a course with, uh, asset analytics. Uh, and in October I'll be teaching for the university of Wisconsin. And then again, probably in either March or April. Yeah, I don't, I don't have much coming up. I've decided to take a little bit of a break, uh, from doing that, but I am on LinkedIn um and then joe joe reliability x is my twitter hashtag if you want to follow me on twitter you can also post questions to captain unreliability yeah that'll be twitter. coming up soon uh, we're going to be launching that very so soon. so we have a, a twitter account and and we're hoping to start publishing some articles associated with the negative side of reliability or things that didn't go right yeah and um, so I'm you can hear more towards really bad advice to make <laughs> it uh comedic um so, so the lighter so, side of things right yeah, so yeah. so just kind of giving your horror stories we want to hear people's horror stories at captain unreliability well i'll give you one now if you have a if you have a couple more minutes yeah, <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> So I was at a I was at a a pulp mill last year and I was giving so I was there to do a lubrication audit and it was um it was Friday morning at like 7 a.m. and I had an hour presentation with the reliability manager and the plant manager and it was it was like 2 days before the end of the month 
and the the reliability manager gets a phone call at like 6:55 and he's like he gets this phone call from the lube specialist and essentially what was happening was one of the pumps which was critical to operation is is leaking like a sieve like the lube the lube guys are putting a new barrel of oil in there it was every 2 to 3 hours <laughs> holy shit yeah female bearings really and so, yeah, and so I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, well, what's going to happen is they're going to shut it down, they're going to fix it, and then everything will be fine. Well, uh, oh boy, I was wrong. <laughs> the, the plant manager, he, he needed to hit production targets because the end of the month was Monday. And so it was overtime, overtime all Friday night, all Saturday, all Sunday. Oh, uh, yeah, I've been there. Wow. Overtime pumping grease into bearings. You could you couldn't nice. you couldn't like put a basin under the leak and recirculate. Yeah, recir- <laughs> <laughs> Have a great old pump that just uh, sucks the grease out of the tub. That's that's grease. glorious though. You so you should be submitting that to Captain yeah. Unreliability. Yeah, so so we'll uh, reveal that uh, it's Captain Dot uh, Unreliability at reliabilityx.com. Where you submit your questions, you can do it right on Twitter. You can just yeah, you shoot can it on Twitter and copy want. Captain Unreliability. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, C Unreliability, I think, is the hashtag. Just, just uh, email it to me after this and I'll put it in the notes. For yeah, sure. awesome. That'd that. be cool. Yeah. Perfect. So thanks, guys, for coming on. Um, we'll definitely get you back on to talk about positive things and not just what's wrong with everyone. I'm trying not to turn off everybody. <laughs> That sounds great, Rob. I really appreciate that. <laughs> this sure. was really cool, though, man. I no, no, no. This was great, man. Uh, I, this was really good and a lot of fun, and and we certainly want to continue to contribute to the to the industry as a whole. So, you know, uh, anytime you want to have us on, shoot out and and let us know what the topic is, and we'll be more than happy to 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 sit down with you. Yep. Awesome. Have a great night, everyone who's listening. Follow the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, follow George and Joe on Twitter, follow Captain Unreliability, see it in the podcast notes on Twitter, and share your horror stories. George, Joe, thanks for coming on, and see you guys next week. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Rob. Thanks. Take care.